to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host this week, Rick Lee. And uniquely, unprecedentedly, I am joined by only one co-host this week, Dr. Charles Peterson. How you doing, Charles? I'm doing okay, but if you need me to, I can pretend to be Lee. I can do voices. <laughs> I'm sure Lee would love that. Lee has given us permission to say why she's not able to join us this week, and that is because, sadly, she has come down with COVID. The reason why she wanted us to share this with you all is as a reminder, hey, People, there's still a pandemic out. It's still going on and people are getting sick. So be careful out there. Wear those masks. Vaccine up and booster up if you're old enough. Vaccine boost. I think I'm going to get my fourth shot sometime soon. They're calling it the geezer booster. <laughs> is what I'm told. The 50 and up. Yes, the geezer booster. The gooster the, is what. The gooster. Goosing up, goosing up your immunity. <laughs> I, I once got a gooster on the L. Um, Oof. <laughs> this week, we are talking about utopia. We're talking about the imaginary future. We're talking about potentialities, politically, metaphysically, because I'm here socially utopias. So Charles, Noel is standing by ready for your drink order and your rant or rave. Well, Noel, I would like a vodka and soda because I'm trying to watch those pounds. The summer's coming and I want to be out there. I'm looking my best, my fittest. So I'm going to lay off of the calories of my drink. So a Tito's and soda. For when you're sporting the Speedo. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I got a Speedo story, but that's not safe for work. <laughs> my rant is COVID pets. My wife and I purchased a dog for our children at the beginning of the pandemic. And we thought it would be a great distraction for our children in the midst of the seclusion and the isolation from their friends. And we were right. And at the same time, the damn dog likes to chew up my books. Oh, no. Because we have an invisible fence. The dog roams the yard as if it's its own personal territory. Amazon only throws my books onto the lawn so they don't have to enter into the space with the dog. And the, I have like so many books that are just chewed up at the corner. I don't know if the dog likes corners. I don't know if the dog likes the glue. I mean, everything I get, the damn dog chews up. And I keep telling my kids, this is a COVID dog. When COVID's over, she's gone. She has served her purpose. <laughs> so, uh, Charles, I'll tell you a story. Maybe your parents also told you, but you have to tell your children that you have a friend who has a big farm <laughs> and he, the dog could roam free on the big farm and will be happy for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just going to tell him that the dog went out for a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rick, what are you drinking and what's your rant or what's your rave? This will be part of my rave in honor of one of the guests who visited my house this past weekend, Jaron. I'm going to have a gin gimlet. I made him a gimlet and I have gotten in the habit of in any drink that calls for citrus 
to put maybe a half a jigger of either triple sec or Cointreau Ooh. in it to just bring out the citrus notes of that drink. And so he was a big fan, and I'm going to have a gin gimlet. sounds good. Uh, you know what? Next time I'm in a bar, which should be later on this afternoon, I'm going to go with that suggestion. <laughs> is it sad that this early in the morning I'm considering what my drink is for later on this afternoon? Right. <laughs> Be prepared, people. That's Be right. Be prepared. Be ready so you don't have to get ready to give your drink order. <laughs> and so in light of that drink order, I am raving this week about friends visiting. So this past weekend, Lee and her wife were visiting me. They stayed in my house. And unfortunately, Charles couldn't make it. He had a conflict. But the three of us had a really, really nice time. And it is nice when you have a house guest that you could spend these kind of downtimes with them where, you know, it's in the morning, you're having your coffee, no one has showered yet, and you're just shooting the breeze. So I am raving about weekends with friends. Sounds very, very nice. I'm sorry I missed it, but next time I will make sure not to have a conflict. So Charles, I know this week we're talking about Utopia, but what did you have in mind? I've mentioned this particular work in an earlier episode, I've been spending this semester reading with a student, Jose Esteban Munoz's Cruising Utopia, the then and there of queer futurity. And the questions that Munoz opens up is an examination of the ways in which certain queer aesthetics practices moments speak to the possibility of utopian thinking and activism. And I found that particularly arresting for me. A, it opens up the field of queer aesthetics in ways I hadn't thought about. But secondly, It has me thinking about where we are in our particular moment of history, where we are as a society and where we are as a civilization. And the political part of me is always thinking about what can be done. How do we handle this? How do we engage it? And I realized I had been doing that without a particular idea of what the future that I think I'm fighting for looks like. Mm. And so reading Munoz's work has really pushed me to think very seriously about a future project of social organization. And I think we're just going to call that utopia for now. So I want to wrestle with the idea of utopia. I want to think about ways in which that's been expressed. I want to think about how, to some degree, so this isn't a full-on examination of Munoz's work, but I want to think about some of the ways in which Munoz helps us to lay out the project of utopia. So during the break, Charles and I had a quick shot because we've never done this alone and we're realizing the burdens of carrying the weight of the podcast on our Just shoulders. something to steady my hand. Just something, the head was shaking a little bit. I'm better now. I'm fine. So Charles, I know that utopia as a word and maybe as a concept comes from the work of Moore, for example, where as you indicated in your introduction, it's a kind of imaginary imagined otherwise i should i was going to say future but i think in more it's not a future it's a different place but i think whether it's future or a different place it's an otherwise something different than what is so i wonder in your thinking about utopia how much are you tied down to that kind of origin of the idea of utopia and if not could we give some contours to it since lee's not here i'll push the the definitional question what are we talking about (laughs) Ooh, i could not live without a definitional question 
<laughs> I am tied to Moore's sense of utopia as an otherwise. I'm very much invested in it as an alternative. And I know the thing about utopia is it's always seen as a fictional or a fantastical type of phenomenon. But I want to think about it in terms of something that's deeply grounded in where one is at the moment that you begin to conceive of. An alternative, mm. an elsewhere, an otherwise, even an elsewhen, if we can think about it. Because certainly the question of futurity is always part and parcel of utopic thinking. You are the medievalist, so you're closer to the history of philosophy than I am. But also one can think about utopic or utopias as being an elsewhen, but in the past as well. Right. If we think mm. about those myths that consider golden ages of human functioning. Mm. So for me, thinking about a utopia, the earliest example would be Plato's rendering of Atlantis. Right? Uh, yeah. Despite the, the fall and the crash of this island, as the civilization he describes, it's still a sense of a utopic sensibility. I think also exists in the thinking, and we've talked about this in the episode on immortality, the idea of what happens in the future post-mortem. One can think about mm. questions of paradise, the Elysian fields, or heaven, we can think about that as utopian sensibility. So it is definitely a space, a place, a moment within historical reckoning, past or present, in which people are conceiving of an alternative to the moment in which they exist. It's interesting, when you raised Plato, I hadn't thought of Atlantis. I thought you were going to make the claim that Plato's Republic is itself right. a utopia, in that it's the construction of some kind of ideal, in his case, an ideal state, that is not the present condition, but, and I think we'll have to come back to this, as you indicated before, it's not unrooted from the current circumstances. It's not a, a complete and total fabrication. It's not completely fantastic. I think one of the early forms of utopia is Tommaso Campanella's City of mm. the Sun, I think think it's called. If it's not called that, I'll correct it in the show notes, <laughs> which I think shades more to the completely fantastic, the somewhat completely other, although even there it's not. Okay, that, that was a long introduction <laughs> to my actual question. I'm a little bit worried that when we push utopia in a temporal direction, and especially into the future, that then we raise the worries that a thinker like Karl Marx had about utopia, in that as long as we push the good, as long as we push justice, as long as we put the right society and the right state off to the future— it makes us quietist in the present. In other words, well, we don't have to do anything about it because this future is coming. So what would prevent a utopia that's pushed into the future from leading to a kind of quietism in the present? That is a very, very good question. And I certainly understand where Marx is coming from in terms of the idea of a far-flung, perfect society as really being a, a type of pacification. Mm -hmm. I think what's important is not thinking about that future as an inevitability, not thinking that, oh, if we just continue along this bourgeois path and then this is going to unfold and then the dialectic of history is going to unfold and bada bing, bada boom, you have the worker's paradise. I think that's how you keep from just settling it in and, and waiting for it to happen. I think what's important for me is to think about 
the utopia or think about the future you want as directly connected to the present day circumstances, very directly connected to the moment struggle. And we can begin to develop the utopic society or think about a utopia as being linked to what is being done now. I take it that you see in utopia a necessary imagining of an otherwise that is necessary because it spurs us to action in the here and now. It motivates us to get to work. It motivates us to bring about the kingdom, as it were, and that it's necessary as a motivation for action. But because of that, it also does not lead to this, what I called quietism and what you called pacification. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what's interesting, and I don't know if it's quite paradoxical, but certainly complicates an idea, is knowing that an else when, elsewhere, else place is possible, but not having it fully constructed per se. And I'm not sure if that goes against the idea of the utopic, where you've already fleshed out the imagining, or can we think about the utopic as being able to imagine a more perfect elsewhere. And mm. if we connect it to what we're doing now, that allows for us to construct, think about, be critical in terms of what that utopic space will look like. So then there's this weird kind of middle place where the utopia has to be determinate enough in order to motivate us to get to work, to work for something more perfect and so on but indeterminate enough that the very constitution of the utopia is the working out or working toward that utopia. Yeah, because that's the danger, right? If we talk about this passive possibility of utopia, part of that passivity is the sense that it's inevitable. And part of the passivity is, I think, if you've constructed such an amazingly, you know, for lack of a better term, alien elsewhere, elsewhere, else place, then the impossibility of it the strangeness of it, the alienness of it, is what deters or undermines people's ability to show agency and work toward it in a meaningful way. So the, the two dangers are, on the one hand, it's inevitable, and on the other hand, it's right. impossible. <laughs> that, that's interesting. And when you were saying that, I know I'm going to hit right into your wheelhouse when I say this, I started thinking about Star Trek The Next right. Generation. And what's interesting to me about the next generation is there are indications here and there that they've solved a lot of right. problems. There's no money, no one wants, no one needs, at least materially. They don't obviously satisfy everyone's desires, but there are no material wants or needs. They give indications that certain social and political problems have been overcome. But on the other hand, it is far, far, far in the future, and it seems so otherwise that it doesn't really have a relation to the present, or am I wrong about that? Yes, yeah, Star Trek is far into the future, as I think good science fiction oftentimes is, but what gives it notes of familiarity that there are elements that we can see as logically possible. So by the time it comes out, 1967, 1968, we do have a space program. We do have rockets that shoot off into space. They may just be orbital rockets, but two years after, if I'm not mistaken about its premiere, two years after that, we have human beings on the moon. So the idea mm. about the ways in which we began to explore off-planet, that's there. Right. Now, is this an advanced formation mm. of that? Yes. But still, Star Trek seems impossible in 1900, when you don't even have regular plane flight. But by the mm. late 60s, 
where the iconography and the idea and the, the cultural effect of extraplanetary search is there and a huge part of our popular consciousness, now it's not so impossible. So you have that. Mm. You have a political formulation in the Federation that's very similar to the types of political right. formulation that we have. We have various species and ethnicities and groups, and I don't want to call them aliens because they're only alien to us, but beings from various planetary and galactic cultures who come together and they engage in certain types of political organization, cooperation, sometimes conflict. And you have the right. themes, certainly Cold War themes, you have the very, very strange and alien presences that are outside of the Federation, that very little is known about them. That's very much so the Soviet Union. So I think there are right. elements for 1960s U.S. popular consumers that, if not immediately recognizable, certainly are recognizable on a subconscious level that make the idea of this utopian existence possible. But then that leads to a point that I hadn't considered before, and it probably goes back to a point you made earlier, Namely, that there's a way in which at least the original series of Star Trek is a way of artistically presenting the Cold War. And the Federation could be understood right. as NATO. It might subtly shift some elements of that so that one could look at the ways in which human Earthlings interact with non-humans, non-Earthlings as a kind of projection into the future of a harmony that wasn't really there in the present. But in the end, it actually just is a kind of aesthetic presentation of the Cold War. And in that sense, it might not actually count as a utopia. A utopia might have to be an actual imagining of something that is more significantly otherwise than Star Trek, the original series, was in its own time. So what you're saying is the challenge may be how do we split the difference? How do we square the circle of there's enough alienness to where it's beyond the limits of our present condition, but still it's familiar enough to where we can see ourselves building toward this very different circumstance out of recognizable pieces? Because once again, if it's on one hand, it's inevitable, and on the other hand, it's impossible. So how do right. we how do we split right. Right? How do you find the perfect balance in that consideration? To split that hair would be what is necessary in order to, on the one hand, affirm utopia as crucial for the present, and on the other hand, avoid the Marxian criticism that others also share. I think we need to split that difference. <laughs> Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So, Charles, I think that that splitting the hair that 
we got to at the end of the last segment, Munoz has a really interesting way of thinking through this by making a distinction between possibility and potentiality or potential. And so I wonder if it's not worthwhile for us to talk through a little bit what's at stake in that distinction and how he sees that distinction. No, I think you're right. I think that that may be central to this because it seems that what we're talking about is the capacity to understand what's available for the construction of a utopia. And this is how Munoz phrases it or organizes it. The possible is an assessment of what may just be readily accessible in terms of a phenomena. It's there. If you shift this to one angle, then this is going to come out because it's already present within the phenomena. And if you shift it over here, this is going to happen because it's inherent too. Versus potential, which right. it's an interesting formulation. Munoz says that his understanding is that the potential is indeterminate, mm. that potential does not speak to what's inevitable or inherent, but is in this null zone that exists between the possibilities that are there. I mean, it's a really hard concept to get a hold of, but I think that opens up the door for the ways in which one can construct something new and very different and something that seems to be beyond the margins of what we believe can happen. Munoz points to, this is like (laughs) Russian nesting dolls, Munoz points to Agamben's reading of Aristotle. And what I always find interesting about Agamben's reading of Aristotle and frankly, about Aristotle's own discussion about potentiality, is that on the one hand, it could be read as what's not yet actual. So if we look at an oak tree, we could go backwards and say, oh, the acorn was potentially an oak tree. And sure, that is there in Aristotle. But then he has this line that I always bump up against because I think it encapsulates a thought really nicely. Aristotle says, you cannot make a saw from wool. Now, when you say that, and you think that in relation to his concept of potentiality, there he's saying, in the present, right now, without looking at time or temporality in any way whatsoever, there is no potential for wool to be a saw. And so it's not rampant and absolute indeterminacy because the wool itself is putting limits on what can be actual. But what I love about that example is that it shows that in potentiality, there is something, and we have to use now scare quotes there, there is something that is present, but not actual, that is not nothing, and it is not necessarily always future-directed. Right. The indeterminacy is really what we're dealing with if we're talking about dealing with potential versus the possible. Because I like the line from an acorn, you'll get an oak tree. And that also may right. speak to the the dangers of inevitability that we were talking about in the previous segment. Mm. But what does mm. it mean to say that you can't get a saw from wool? There's still something there. There's a thing, right? You, I, I may be repeating what you're saying, but I, I like wrestling with the idea. But there's a thing there that can be acted upon or can be realized or can be taken in some direction. And it may not be a saw, but something can be derived from the wolf. And maybe that something becomes the foundation for, and back to our original thinking, the utopic possibility. Uh, Well, first of all, welcome to metaphysics. Um, (laughs) Yo, you tricked me. You tricked me with your (laughs) metaphysics and Lee tricks us with her thought experiments. 
damn you. I've got to find a political theory trick. So I can say, look, you're talking about power. You didn't know you were. Right. <laughs> well, and my metaphysics trick is that I think it's all power all the way down. Mm. But actually, this discussion of potentiality might bring us to the point of talking about power. I just wanted to follow up on what you said, because I like this metaphysics that Agamben points out, and Munoz highlights this, that you struggled to get to the word thing that even in your voice was kind of a question mark. It's a reality that is not existing and yet is crucial for the constitution of things that do and will exist. I think Munoz is really interested in this. And then there's a way to look at the positive side of something like activation, that the potentiality is not inevitably going to bring itself to this or that or another actuality. Even with the acorn and the oak tree, something else is required in order to activate that potentiality. Right. And then the flip side of that activation, and this goes back to the saw and wool example, is that because it needs activation, the potentiality could also in certain circumstances be resistance. Resistance to certain forms of activation. I will not. And I think that notion of potentiality is a really fruitful notion. First of all, I think what you said is just absolutely brilliant, and I'm completely on board because I think that certainly moves us toward one of the points that Munoz makes in the introduction in terms of what his particular project is, which is a larger project looking at queer aesthetics and the imagining of at certain moments. But they really does an effective job of talking about agency, the activation, mm. the working upon a particular circumstance or a particular phenomenon in order to realize or generate utopian possibility or utopian at least thinking from within this particular moment. So I really love the idea of thinking about the utopian in order to avoid the complacency of inevitability, thinking about the idea of struggle, the idea of resistance, mm. the idea of a group of workers or activists who are working upon a specific set of conditions that in the moment do not seem to have potential. But based upon the no of their resistance to the accepted circumstances, they can begin to find that thing or act upon that thing that opens up for something else, that opens up for a utopic possibility. Well, and then in that sense, these conditions don't seem to have potential. There's something about the activity, the activism, the activation that mines that potential and shows, no, wait a second, there is this potential here. Now let's work toward its activation, its actualization. Transformation, right? Yeah. This is how we can begin to transform. This is how we can begin to alter. This is how we begin to change. This is how we begin to create the utopic possibility. And this is how it becomes real for us because we're making it real. This group of workers, this group of activists, this group of soldiers, this group of warriors, whatever, they make it real. Whereas before, it didn't exist. So back to the Aristotelian binary, being and non-being now exists simultaneously. And we can begin to see the ways in which they fit together. And now we're doing all this Marxist, right? And now it's the agency <laughs> that allow for us to see the being and the non-being and to transform those into a thing, a very particular right. thing with these characteristics. Well, and you just raised it there. And Munoz is clear to point out that he's been heavily influenced by Ernst Bloch in all of this. 
But he points out the crucial role that imagination plays in all of this, which, as an aside, let me just say, since the modern period, Descartes and following, I think imagination frequently gets short shrift philosophically because epistemologically it seems to only go astray. It seems only to bring us away from reality. But I heard you picking up Munoz's challenge that, no, this work of recognizing potentiality requires the work of imagination. That reminds me of a great line from a book written by Deleuze and Guattari, and it's really one of my favorite quotes, and I try to include it in any presentation at any conference that I have, which is that philosophers are just fabricators of concepts. Mm. So for me, that was very powerful in terms of my own aesthetic leanings, my own interests in terms of fiction. And I love it because I never felt myself to be a rationalist as a philosopher. I never felt myself to be some rigid, systemic, analytic. That's not me. But if there's room for flights of fancy, I'm your guy. (laughs) I'm buying a first class ticket on the fancy flight. (laughs) Well, I am a fancy boy. I am not a fanciful philosopher. But it seems to me that what we're getting to is the role of imagination and the role of creativity and the importance of being able to think beyond, and this is Munoz's idea, the negativity of the instant, which can be very Mm. imprisoning. And the way in which the no or the negation or the negativity of the moment in which one exists can completely undermine the ability to think and be fanciful and be creative and fabricate something else. And I think that ability to fabricate not only gives you the possibility of creating a utopic space, but it also helps one to become critical and recognize the elements in the now that can help you build toward that utopic space. The concept of the prison of the negative floors me. This is one of the most game-changing things I've heard in the last several years, because I think I've been struggling around this very issue without bringing it to the clarity that you just did, Charles. And I think that two things emerge from that for me. And let me see if this resonates with where you were going. The first is Munoz begins his book all the way in the introduction by saying, we are not queer. We have never been queer. So there's a negation. There's the negative. And there are many ways to read this negative, but one is a social, a political, a cultural negation of queerness as such, and that could be imprisoning. But then there's a moment, and he moves very quickly to this, where that we are not queer is now turned into not yet. We are not yet queer. There's a moment where the prison of negativity or the negative is flipped so that it becomes a potential for some future not present, but also in an interesting way, not bound by the prison of negativity. The negation of the negation, I think is the term he uses. Yeah, I think that's really an amazing point that you bring up in terms of how do you move beyond that. I also read the line about we are not queer is also a negation of the framework of abnormalness that gets thrown upon this population Mm. or these figures or these practices or these methodologies from the dominant culture. So negation is doing a lot of work within his formulation. 
on three or four levels, two of which you've already pointed out. But that's it, because that's freeing now. Because now if we're talking about a negation of a negation, we've got a double negative, which is now positive. Now we've opened up doors for something else. This is how you start turning the unthinkable into the possible by realizing that potential. I was going to correct you on your use of the word possible there, but I think you have to be right that it becomes possible by, as you put it, the recognition and releasing of the potential. And so while Agamben, who Munoz cites here, would reject the notion of possibility, I think if it's linked to this issue of potentiality, as you just put it, then I think the criticism of possibility gets wrapped up in the positivity of potentiality and potential. But I think what you also are circling back to is that this negation of the negation requires an imagination of an otherwise that is not bound by the prison of the negative. And so now we're back to the central role of imagination in utopia. What role then does art play in relation to this central role of imagination in utopia, in imagining an otherwise, because we've been talking about imagination in an incredibly theoretical way, like thinking an otherwise, but art is not necessarily a thinking an otherwise. And so I wonder what you think about the role of art in relation to imagination and its own relation to utopia. There are two ways I can approach this. The first is my second favorite quote that I always try to work in a conference presentation, which is from the writer Neil Gaiman from his Sandman graphic novel series. Mm. And the line is, a thing need not have happened for it to be true. Uh And that's how I think about art. I think about art as revealing to the consumer, to the viewer, to the listener, to the participant, revealing something that has real weight and real presence in the world, despite maybe not being concretely true as we understand a thing to be true, especially if we're talking about a utopia. That does not mean that it cannot exist. Mm. Now that we've sketched out for you, now that we've written the lyrics to the song or composed the melody or painted the picture or shaped the sculpture, now that we've done that, now we've given you some evidence of the possibility of it existing within the world. So Mm. this may be the first step and this may stimulate. And this is the second way that I think I want to think about this in terms of what exactly is the emotional, the psychological if we want to use this term, the spiritual value of art in terms of thinking about the utopic. And now that I've given you an example of what could exist, now hopefully if the technique and the theme and the moment and your receptivity to this aesthetic expression is in alignment, now one can find the inspiration and the investment in possibility of it and that activates your agency. And then that's what leads you to begin to do the work of transforming the potential into the possible. And that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Adorno. And I actually have this on a coffee mug that a friend of mine bought for me in Frankfurt. As I've mentioned, I think on the podcast, you can buy Adorno tchotchkes in Frankfurt. There's something so Um, wrong and so right about that. There's something so wrong and so right. But the quote that's on the coffee mug is, art is magic freed from the lie in order to be true. 
What reminded me of that is your Gaiman quote that something doesn't have to be real. Thing need not have happened for it to be true. Ah, yeah, even better. A thing need not have happened in order to be true. And Adorno, I think, tells the flip side of that, that art, from the perspective of the prison of the negative, seems like magic. Right. But once it's freed from the untruth of the present condition, or he goes even further, the lie, then it can become true. I really like that impulse in Adorno to see what he calls authentic art as not merely depicting the present circumstances, but also showing the way in which the present circumstances are in fact a lie. In an interesting way, this circles back to your Deleuze quote. That's from the book, What is Philosophy? Yeah, it is. That is the book, yeah. Was written at the end of their lives. And although they don't come right out and say it, I always read that idea of philosophy being the fabrication of concepts as a way of insisting that it's only through this fabrication that we can tell the truth. Or to put it in another way, what if the present condition of things is the actual lie? Then what do we have to do in order to tell the truth? Right. So I have a question for you then in terms of Adorno's idea of authentic art. Mm. Is he saying that there is a truth that present conditions are suppressing and that imagination and artistic expression by their mere existence reveal the lie and the artistic presentation itself that is a truth or the truth? Because what I'm also concerned about are the ways in which what we may find to be very disagreeable ideas or very disagreeable notions or very disagreeable values are someone's utopia. They may not be our mm. utopic sensibility or goal. They may not be the paradise that we see or the perfect society that we hope for. It may be the complete and total negation of what we think to be utopia. It may be our dystopia. But someone else holds their idea of a utopia as equally valid, as equally truthful, and the conditions constraining that as equally a lie as we feel about our particular notions. I don't want to violate Godwin's rule. <laughs> Right. Hitler. Right. Hitler. Right. I don't want to violate that. But, you know, what Lenny Riefenstahl was doing when she makes Triumph of the Will. Right. That's moving toward this national socialist utopic sensibility. The Third Reich is a utopia for them. Or even Speer when he designs a new Berlin and so on. Yeah. What I like about this notion that somebody's utopia could be my dystopia or what. I think is the most horrific situation could be someone else's utopia is that just to say that utopia is, and I think this is Bloch's point, that utopia is necessary for politics. Utopia is necessary for constituting the good life. That in and of itself does not settle the content of that good life. Mm. That in and of itself does not settle the determinacy of what that utopia might look like. And I think often when many people think about politics, they mean the good kind of politics. And they forget that once you're talking about politics, 
you got to talk about all of it. Otherwise, you're naive. Right. And so now I think what you're pointing out, and this goes back to your first introduction to the concept of utopia, is that we're not here talking about a naive picture of a future. Right. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Rick, I like your idea about not thinking about utopia as naive, but I think still what's important is the role of hope. Ah. And how does hope inform the processes and imaginings that we've been discussing in the previous segments? And what's that role? Is it simply optimism? Is it simply, you know, guys, things are going to get better. Is it simply Annie singing to Daddy Warbucks? Which is like the worst name ever for a character. So I want to talk about hope and I want to think about hope and its role in these formulations, the possibilities and the potential of transformative work and creating yeah. the space. Right. Let's move away from the idea of the perfect, though I know that's kind of inherent in the utopian idea. But is it? That's another question, too. Does utopia have to be perfect? And what role does hope have in all of that? I like what you set out way at the beginning of this episode, namely that you're interested in a notion of utopia that is not so determinate that the very constitution of the utopia would not be a matter for our working together not just toward, but also on. We work toward a utopia at the same time we're working on a utopia. And because I'm an historian of philosophy, it is interesting that Bloch first shows a positive notion of utopia in a book that is primarily about hope. So he fundamentally sees the concept of utopia and the concept of hope coming together. But I wonder, aren't we still now in the same position of having to split a hair between, as you put it, the Mickey Rooney, you know, <laughs> we're going to get him, which is also, by the way, the hope of a Cubs fan is that at the end of every season, I say, well, we'll get him next year. And we did that once in a hundred and some odd years. So uh, split the hair between that kind of naive optimism, as you put it, and on the other hand, losing all hope, giving up. What would that notion of hope look like that is not naive, not blind optimism, but also does not succumb to a kind of pessimism? Forgive my dallying with my Sunday school and, and Baptist church upbringing. But I keep thinking along the lines of if faith is the evidence of things unseen, then maybe hope is the lesson learned from things attempted. So what keeps hope from being just the, hey guys, let's put on a show, mm. right? Mickey Rooneyism 
is having done the work and been confronted with the limits of the work that you're doing at that time, but coming back and saying, we've learned this lesson, let's take another step based on what we've learned. Mm. So it's a cumulative accretion of a sense of success is what continues and drives the hope. So I think about it in the historical terms of Martin Luther King. There's a great collection of his writings called A Testament of Hope. Mm. And certainly King had a utopic vision when he talks about the beloved community. Right. Which was at the same time we have Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, but we have the beloved community. He's not naive, but he understands that each march, each sit-in, each campaign, each attempt to get a legislature to vote in favor of a Voting Rights Act or a Civil Rights Bill, these are small steps. But each moment that one gains insight into how this process works gives you the sense of how this process can be improved. That's where your hope lies. Because if you put all of your hopeful eggs in one basket and it drops, it's over. But if you're saying hope is the slow growing accretion, it is this almost microdialectic movement toward this end, then that's what allows it to be reasonable and that's what allows it to be sustainable. So that puts me in mind of the speech that Reverend Jesse Jackson gave at the 1988 Democratic National Convention. And I hadn't thought about it in this direction up until now. But here's a man who went incredibly far in the Democratic primaries for president of the United States. Sorry, I have to say all of that in case our listeners aren't the geezers we are. (laughs) I know. Um, And on the one hand, this is an incredibly negative moment that he went as far as anyone could have imagined a black man would have gone in 1988. But the negativity is, but he was still beat down. And in that moment, this moment of what one could look at as failure and loss— The end of that speech is, keep hope alive. Wherever you are tonight, you can make it. Hold your head high. Stick your chest out. You can make it. It gets dark sometimes, but the morning comes. Don't you surrender. Suffering breeds character. Character breeds faith. In the end, faith will not disappoint. You must not surrender. You may or may not get there, but just know that you are qualified and you hold on and hold out. We must never surrender. America will get better and better. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. On tomorrow night and beyond. Keep hope alive. I love you very much. And now that I hear you, your point, I am now reading that speech as saying, look, I'm not a dumbass. I don't (laughs) misrecognize what just happened. But what I also want to recognize is what just happened. And even in this failure, we got to move on. We got to push it forward. And the name for that is something like hope. Do you think that in certain ways, pragmatism is oppositional to hope as we've been talking about it? I I wouldn't think so. Because it's a question for me of to what degree does pragmatism hold on to utopic possibility? So just to be clear, when you say pragmatism, you're not thinking about the philosophical school. You mean I'm pragmatic in that I recognize the reality of things and I'm not going to tilt windmills. And I don't think it necessarily has to be. 
I mean, I think to maybe split a different hair for a moment, I think realpolitik is always anti-utopian in that it doesn't operate on the basis of an otherwise that we can and should work toward. It really just is the mere acceptance of what is and the attempt to make the best of it you can. Right. Imprisoned in the now. Yeah, I think that's right. It's imprisoned in the now in a way that just to call someone pragmatic or to engage a problem pragmatically doesn't necessarily imprison one in the now, although I could see that it might. Right, because I think in popular usage, not philosophically speaking, but in popular usage, the idea of pragmatism suggests a certain, not necessarily cynicism, Mm. but a certain acquiescence to the now. I was going to say resignation, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, better yet. It suggests a certain resignation and say, look, let's just be pragmatic about this. This is what is, and let's work with what we have, versus, all right, let's think about how this fits into something larger, like the ongoing project of developing the type of society that we want. Right. But you've mentioned on the podcast before, and we discussed it, I think, a little bit more extensively in relation to cancel culture, the need to recognize this is not the battle for me to fight right here and right now. But the reason why I'm doing that is not in a situation of resignation, but in the name of pitching a battle in the future that is, in fact, more important, more crucial to wage than the battle I'm confronted with now. Right, which keeps alive this larger project of developing or constructing this future. Because me shifting battlefields, this allows me to work in that future in the now. Right. Yeah. And I think now that you say that, Charles— I think implicit in your idea of a utopia that is also worked on, it's not complete, it's not a definite, determinate picture that now we all march toward, but is something to be worked on. I now think that in any kind of working like that, there has to be something like hope implicit in that. I hope that it will turn out even something as simple as, for example, baking bread, which a lot of that is just hope. Like, I I hope this is going to rise. They said punch it down. I punched it down. I hope it's going to work. Any kind of working on something like that will always entail some implicit dimension of hope. No, you're right. You're right. There's hope or there's surrender. Mm. It seems to me, if we're going to go back to oppositional ideas, there's hope or their surrender. And just accepting what is, once again, imprisoned in the now, that's complete surrender. And the antithesis of utopic thinking. Yeah. Enter here, all ye who are without hope. Right. So the despair, I think, is incredibly destabilizing. And as I think back to conversations the three of us have had on this podcast, I now hear you constantly reminding us that any philosophical position that we're going to espouse that is going to lead to despair is not a philosophical position worthy of holding. No. One of my favorite quotes, I've been doing a lot of quotes this podcast, but one of my favorite quotes is, do not be surprised by evil nor paralyzed by despair. Mm. And the paralysis is, is the exact opposite of the agency and the activism that it takes to transform all the things that we've been constructing over the course of our conversation. Yeah, yeah. But I take that seriously because it's easy. That paralysis allows for ones to be imprisoned in the now, to be imprisoned by the negation, by the negativity. And you do nothing except just be acted upon. 
and become an object subject to these other movements, maybe these other ideas, maybe somebody else's utopian, but for you, dystopian goals. And the necessity for movement, to be active, to be an agent, and to have the belief that that activism can have meaning and is having some sort of meaning is central to the project of constructing utopia. So then let me ask you this straight up. If you could imagine in the United States a political body, a social form, a set of social relations, and so on, that for you would be the utopia. Do you have hope we're going to get there? I want to say it's not too soon to start to recognize we may be looking at a renaissance in the American organized labor movement. Mm. If we look at the Starbucks that are being organized, if we look at the amazing victory of those Amazon workers in Staten Island, New York, those are people that chose not to accept the premises of the now. Yeah. The number of strikes has increased in the past few years as well, and also successful strikes. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And really vital and important considering where we are now, the recent discussion of the drafts of the opinions from the majority on the Supreme Court regarding the future of Roe v. Wade. Right. Right. One of my favorite lines from one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but I think then, and you raising waves of Supreme Court opinions that have been coming out, and for the listener, we're recording this in the very week that the leaked draft of Samuel Alito's majority opinion, striking down Roe v. Wade, came out. But this just comes at the end of a wave of decisions about voting rights and about other rights that I think here you're pointing out the ways in which perhaps many of us in the United States have been naively hopeful for too long. And maybe now I will replace your word pragmatic with the word strategic. We have not been strategic enough. And many of us have become passive with the inevitability of mm. this idea of freedom and the society that we think we want. And we've just been expecting it to happen. So I hesitate for a moment because it seems like what you've been pointing to in this whole segment that started out with the issue of hope is collectivity and the importance of the collective. That hope is something, sure, it's an individual affect, it's an individual emotion, but that it seems more and more as this discussion goes on, you're locating it also, and maybe first of all, in the collective. Yeah, I think what keeps hope from being naive is that it's a shared hope. Mm. If it's an individual hope, eh, that's kind of worrisome. But if it's a shared hope, then it has real power and possibility. That also holds for those who share a hope for something that we find incredibly dystopic. Right. The MAGA people are incredibly hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. And have been working on that hope for a long time and are about to see it fully realized. Because remember, make America great again is a utopic sensibility. And that goes all the way back to your pointing out that utopias don't necessarily lie in the future. They can also lie in the past as the golden age. It's a narrative about a despair of the present and the need to get back to where we were not despairing rather than move forward. We need to move forward in order to get back to where we were great. And, and it seems to me that that opens up another question for me. Do utopic spaces, do they transcend history? Mm. Do they become above change and growth and conflict and contradiction? Or is a utopic space a place where various types of problems will still need to be addressed, but in a very different way than we address them now? And I guess we're falling into some sort of a Galian, you know, forward-moving dialectical inevitability. I don't want to do that. Right. But I wonder... Does the utopic space become a fixed point 
Mm. Or when you said transcendent, one way to think of that is it is not tied down to the conditions of now. It is not tied down to the conditions of here. And yet, while we work on it and work toward it, we're always going to be working here. We're always going to be working now. And so there's always this relation that the utopia will never be realized, but the working on it is always going to be right here, right now with us. And I like that idea, that sensibility, what you just articulated. It's closer to my sense of politics. It's closer to my sense of metaphysics for what little sense of metaphysics I have. (laughs) But is that in contradiction to the traditional, according to Hoyle, idea of a utopia? Well, I think we broke pretty quickly with (laughs) the idea of utopia when we argued against a utopia being a fixed and determinate ideal which either will inevitably happen or is impossible. And we started using utopia more, I think, in the Munozian, Blochian sense of an imagination that conditions the possibility of our working toward something more, something better, something otherwise. Well, Charles, this has been, for me, a really enlightening conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot about your philosophical approach to politics, and I think I've learned that I also have some utopian impulses in my own thinking that I've never quite put in relation to the concept of utopia. But unfortunately, Noel has just announced last call, and so we're going to have to drink up and skedaddle. But before I skedaddle and down this drink, I want to invite our listeners to join us on patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. And if you reach the Medici level, we will give you a shout out on the podcast. The Medici level also allows you to ask us to do whatever you want, as long as it's legal and moral. And hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll call a cab. All right, I'll join you in that cab. Good seeing you, man. You too. Good night. Good night.